Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 42, January 3rd to January 9th, 1862. Welcome to our first episode of the new year. May I say Happy New Year to everybody? Welcome to 2022. Hope everybody's year is getting off to a good start. Last week, we gave 1861 a proper conclusion. We continued skirmishing in Kentucky, giving a real introduction to Nathan Bedford Forrest, who will be perpetuating the cavalry superiority trope for the rest of the war in the West. This week, we have a few events ringing in 1862. We will bounce around a bit to what have become our usual places, Northern Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky. We will start first with Northern Virginia. Let's drop in and see what is going on along the Potomac River. While this may seem like a sideshow for our main story, it should be noted that it was a larger concern for the Lincoln administration. Remember, the Confederates had set up some batteries to effectively close off the river, for commercial traffic to Washington. The guns would also be a good connector to the eastern shore of Maryland and potential resupply from secessionist-friendly Marylanders. It would be easier to get in supplies from overseas as well. If you think about it, there would be more shoreline potentially available. So you combine that with the potential threat on Washington, and then you realize how that could be irritating to Lincoln. Remember, Lincoln has somewhat of an obsession with defending the capital, hence all the fortifications, the amount of troops that are going to be allocated for its defense, and that's actually going to really affect the upcoming campaigns here in 1862. Lincoln would prod his commanding officer to do something about the pesky rebels, but as we have already highlighted, the slow and cautious moving machine that was George B. McClellan and his leadership style, you can imagine those messages were left on red. Gideon Wells would dial up the Navy to take care of the situation. The USS Anacostia and the USS Yankee would be sent to test out the defenses along the Potomac in present-day Prince William and Stafford counties. As we have mentioned, there were several batteries in the area around what is present-day the Marine Corps base at Quantico. Remember, we had some really early action at Akia Creek in the same vicinity. Johnson and the Confederates had been busy post-First Manassas to try to choke off commerce to the capital city, so the construction of more fortifications by infantry units would be conducted for the latter part of 1861 and early 1862. One of the strongest of these was Cockpit Point. I have seen that this position was actually partially constructed by the Texas Brigade, who will soon come under the command of the previously introduced John Bell Hood. 
the position was thought to be vulnerable, at least in part, from infilating fire. If you have Google Maps, you might want to check this one out. Cockpit Point, as the name implies, is a point that juts out into the Potomac River. So, ships from the north might be able to fire down the batteries. The two federal vessels would attempt to do just that on January 3, 1862. Both ships were armed with 9-inch Dahlgren guns, and they would open fire on the works and in turn receive fire back. There was one hit that did little damage. Afterwards, the two vessels would withdraw back up the river toward Washington, satisfied they had at least exposed the weakness at Cockpit Point. But they did too good a job of showing the Confederates exactly what they needed to do to improve. Work soon began amongst the rebels to fix their exposed flank, thus making the action on the 3rd matter very little in the grand scheme of things. It is impressive the Confederates were able to hole up the Potomac for several months, but eventually, as McClellan moves on Richmond and McDowell drives south toward Fredericksburg, fortifications such as Cockpit Point, Possum Point, and Akia Creek would all have to be abandoned, only to be reoccupied by the advancing Yankees. As 1861 came to a close, there were many who were restless and wished to have at the enemy. We have already discussed Washington and their wish to kick McClellan into drive. Remember, Jefferson Davis has the overall strategy of maintaining southern territory, something that would persist throughout the war. Thomas Jackson, assigned to the valley, would have an idea to take the fight to the enemy. He wanted to lead an invasion of Pennsylvania a couple years before this actually would occur. But this was not according to the plan, and Robert E. Lee was not there yet to finesse Jefferson Davis into agreeing to these offensive plans. No, Jackson would be disappointed, but there would be a potential alternative. Romney, in present-day West Virginia, west of Winchester, was left for the taking. Benjamin Kelly, who we have already introduced in a previous episode, was stationed in the city with only 5,000 men. Jackson, with his 10,000, could potentially overwhelm this smaller force and strike back at the Federals. If not an invasion of Maryland or Pennsylvania, this could be a good consolation early in the year. The movements would also go a long way to giving the rebels something to do. On January 1st, Jackson moved out of Winchester with his own Stonewall Brigade, as well as a division under William Wing Loring. His army was briefly named the Army of the Mongahela, which displays the wishful nature of General Jackson. Of course, the Mongahela River is one of the three rivers flowing at Pittsburgh. Leading this force is an interesting and now controversial figure in the cavalry commander Turner Ashby. Ashby is an interesting figure that I want to get into a little bit more in a later episode. The Fauquier Virginia native would command the 7th Virginia Cavalry 
during the upcoming Valley Campaign. This unit will be much larger than the usual cavalry regiment and will be generally ill-disciplined. Turner Ashby is interesting because he has a General Lax style of commanding. Soldiers in the 7th would be given extra leniency when it came to leaves away from the army. The valuable thing about this and the valuable thing about Ashby was that there was an understanding between Turner, his soldiers, and the civilians of the valley that went a long way toward the success of the Confederacy in early 1862. Ashby would have his problems with Stonewall Jackson, though, the disciplinarian Jackson disliking Ashby's methods. It is also during this expedition where Loring will clash with Jackson, as we will see. When Jackson first arrives to the valley, it is important to mention that he only inherits about 2,000 men who are ill-disciplined. Eventually, he is reunited with his own brigade of Virginia regiments. They will be dubbed the Stonewall Brigade. He also gets these men under Loring as well, kind of bolstering his numbers to that 10,000 we talked about. The first goal would be a potential strike at the north before securing West Virginia and hopefully turning the tide in that lost region. Jackson would first wish to expand his area of operation directly north to the Potomac and then west toward Romney. Romney was important because a key road passed through the town. Stonewall advanced first to Hancock, Maryland, and demanded the surrender of the federal forces under Frederick Lander. Hancock lies on the Potomac River, in between Hagerstown and Cumberland in western Maryland. Cumberland was actually another potential target for Jackson during this expedition. But let's backtrack and introduce Frederick Lander. Lander was a native of Salem, Massachusetts. He did several transcontinental survey missions prior to the outbreak of the war and was an author and poet. Lander would even go to Texas to see if there were any sentiments for the Union cause. The Salem native has actually been involved in our story already, serving on the staff of McClellan during his early campaigns in western Virginia. Lander comes to an unfortunate end, dying of a congestive chill in March of 1862. In January of 1862, he was given a demand of surrender by Jackson, which was actually delivered by Ashby, but the fiery lander told them to kick rocks. After an artillery duel and the Union forces burning the bridges as a deterrent on the potential assault from the rebel forces, Jackson would withdraw. Total casualties were estimated to be about 20 or so for both sides. The Confederates did manage to destroy some track of the Baltimore and Ohio Railway. They were less successful with a canal dam that was easily fixed shortly afterwards by federal engineers. So overall, not really a great deal to show so far. 
Now, it is important to mention that when the Confederates set out from Winchester, the weather was an unusual spring-like condition. It was not until they advanced farther north that conditions turned into full winter weather. Now, I don't know how many of you are on the East Coast, how many of you are in Virginia, but as I record this episode, it is now 74 degrees outside, uh, and it is January, so I think we are all fairly familiar with the weather conditions being a little bit erratic. So it was spring-like, and then all of a sudden, there's a blizzard, there's, there's a lot of cold weather, and if you listen to or read Sam Watkins in his Company H memoir, he describes the miserable weather and highlights the rebels as being ill-prepared to face this new foe in Mother Nature. Benjamin Kelly would engage part of the lead elements of the Confederates during a reconnaissance in force. During this action, the Federals saw some success against Jackson's troops at a place called Hanging Rock Pass. It was reported that they were able to capture two pieces of artillery before withdrawing. Still being outnumbered by the oncoming Southerners, they would evacuate Romney later in the week, much to the frustration of Lander, who all the while is begging for McClellan to order an offensive against Jackson. And to be honest, he's probably right. Jackson probably would not be able to handle, at this point, getting counterattacked, but I guess that's all sort of speculative there. Romney was successfully occupied by the Confederates on January 14th, who took advantage of the Federals skipping town. It was said that Romney would change hands many times during the Civil War, but counts are often exaggerated. Still, Romney would see plenty of both sides during the conflict, much like Winchester, who reportedly switched hands some 72 times. But, not sure, again, that might have been exaggerated. The occupation of the city was the high watermark for Jackson. There would be no great reconquest of the territory lost in the western portion of the state. There would be no invasion of the north, at least not until later in the year. Now, with weather and road conditions taking a drastic turn, and the morale of the soldiers in his command plummeting, Jackson would move his forces back south, leaving Loring and his command in Romney. Loring, though, would not stay long. There would be complaints leveled against Jackson to the War Department, and the position in Romney seemed untenable. Now, there's a lot of factors that go into this complaint. For one, Romney was not exactly a winter resort for Loring's troops, and the weather conditions were continuing to be less than ideal. Another factor that comes into play is that Loring would have outranked Jackson and the regular army before the war. Obviously, there was some kind of animosity now that in the new Confederate army, Jackson was his superior officer. The politics of war reared their ugly head, as instead of the petition going to Joseph Johnson, it went straight to the Secretary of War, who at the time is Judith Benjamin and it would be Jefferson Davis who would order the abandonment of Romney. Loring would withdraw, but Jackson was not happy. 
nor was he popular with officers under his command. Many had sided with Loring and concluded their leader in the valley was a lunatic. Facing this heavy criticism, Jackson would actually attempt to resign. It was only at the urging of Joseph Johnson and Virginia Governor John Lechner that Jackson would remain in the army. Stonewall would retaliate by attempting to court-martial Loring, but rather than have the situation continue to deteriorate, the Confederates would reassign Loring out of Jackson's command. And as somebody in HR, I can tell you that is a huge no-no these days, but I won't get into that. There were unforeseen consequences, though. Troops were moved out of the Shenandoah Valley, leaving Jackson with only 4,000. Thus, he would be unable to defend Winchester, which would be occupied by federal forces shortly thereafter. It would not be until the campaign season opens in earnest that the legend of Jackson would grow. If we head out to Missouri, we have the Battle of Roan's Tanyard, also known as the Battle of Silver Creek. Now, this engagement is very similar to that of Mount Zion Church, which was fought in December of 1861. Because these are similar in action, and we can say part of the same campaign initiated by Sterling Price, then we can lump them together. So, when we were in Missouri last, the federal forces were focused on dispelling the Missouri State Troops. Price had scurried away after success at Lexington. Thompson had been defeated at Fredericktown, which would open up the availability of Grant. It would actually be a big factor in the movement on Forts Henry and Donelson, which will begin pretty soon, as we are now in early 1862. Giving in to Union control in Missouri would not sell well with Price. We can point out that raiding and bushwhacking operations were already underway. This was part of the reason Fremont did not move out of St. Louis, because he was attempting to control the partisan activity. Thompson's State Guard are often classified as partisans. Soon, we will talk about guerrilla activity and focus specifically in this region. If I time it right, I compare it with a memoir review written by a guerrilla during the war. So Price will send units of his Missouri State Guard to raid into Missouri and further disrupt federal activity. In addition, they would attempt to recruit more into their ranks. The first major setback would be at a place called Mount Zion Church in Boone County. It would be here that the State Guard would run into Union troops under the command of Benjamin Prentiss. Prentiss had been born in Virginia, but moved out west prior to the war. He was actually descended from one of those early settlers way back from the 1600s. Prentiss would serve in volunteer units in the Mormon War and Mexican-American War prior to the war between the states. In late 1861, Prentiss commanded a unit of Missouri Cavalry as well as the 66th Illinois, a unit that was also known as Burge's Western Sharpshooters. This was the Western equivalent to Burdan's Sharpshooters, 
the famous unit in the east. The Union forces would encounter a contingent of rebels under the command of Caleb Dorsey, who will be involved in the Trans-Mississippi throughout the war. On December 28th, the Federals came into contact with Dorsey's men and routed a Union of Guardsmen before assaulting the main camp. Three separate charges would finally dislodge the rebels. The Confederates in both of these engagements, it should be said, were poorly armed and supplied. Union casualties were light, with three killed and 20 wounded. Casualties were 25 killed and over 100 wounded for the Confederates, with an additional 60-some captured. Dorsey would escape and soon be ordered to disperse his men, as this would mark the beginning of irregular warfare in Missouri, as opposed to the fixed battles we have overviewed so far. On January 7th, much the same thing happened at a place called Roan's Tan Yard, or Silver Creek. The Missouri State Guard had a camp installed at this location for the already mentioned purpose of sowing general discontent with the Union. These Confederates would be under the command of one John A. Poindexter, who was a main recruiter for the Southern cause in Missouri. Poindexter would actually be captured later in the war and almost executed by the Union forces. Confederate officers would object, saving his life, but still forcing him to be moved out of the state due to his association as a bushwhacker. Union forces, including the 1st Iowa Cavalry, would find out the presence of the camp at Silver Creek and move to assault the position. I have seen that the Confederates would show a numerical superiority, maybe even a thousand as opposed to 500 for the federal side. Much in the same way as Mount Zion Church, the rebels were not as organized and would break after a Union charge. The battle was fought in heavy fog, which would cover the rebel retreat. Despite escaping, they would leave the camp to the Union troops. Supplies were captured, with the Confederates receiving the bulk of the casualties. Guerrilla fighting would soon intensify in the state. That should just about do it. We had a packed little week for our first episode in the new year. We talked about the Romney expedition, which sees Jackson suffering a bit of a setback, if not on the field, at least to his reputation. We saw a naval action on the Potomac and two smaller-scale engagements in Missouri. But what about Kentucky, you ask? I know we have probably become used to the rotation, including the Bluegrass State. Lucky for us, we will head back there next week with the Battle of Middle Creek. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to our website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com.
gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.